Well, good morning, Central Bible and Theophilus. I, it, this is awesome. I can't even, I can't put words to it. It is so good to have you here, our guests, and I speak on behalf of the whole church to say you are totally welcome here. I'm glad that you're here. I know that you have, yeah, let's welcome our friends. Same is true for my brothers and sisters in Central Bible. It's glad to, I'm glad to have you here as well. So to all be together worshiping Jesus, I can't think of something better to do today. That's fantastic. I know that you guys in Theophilus have been talking about some hard-hitting sorts of things, and as we plan this out, uh, I wanted to jump into a discussion on the problem of evil, and I'm hoping that it will be very encouraging to you. Okay? Ha! That's quite a challenge. We're going to talk about the problem of evil today, and my hope is that we would actually get to a place like we just sang in this song, where we orient our hearts and minds on hopefulness instead of optimism. And I'm going to spend the next bit of time explaining what I mean. I want to pray together because when we start to talk about the problem of evil, there's, there's two different ways that we sort of engage with this. One is intellectual and one is emotional. The emotional problem of evil is when we are suffering or one of our loved ones is suffering deeply, what to say and do in that moment is extremely difficult. The intellectual problem of evil is more how do we think about this and talk about it and what's going on in the Bible verses and so forth. That's going to be what we talk about today. But I want to just say before we pray, in terms of your suffering or your friends or loved ones or neighbors that are suffering, we don't go into that moment with, oh, here's the right way to think about it, and now you don't have to feel pain anymore. You see? We're not going to try to solve the emotional problem. That is, a, that is a difficult and tricky thing. So we're going to be talking about the problem of evil, the way that the Scriptures talk about God and His goodness, and to do that, we need God to help us. We need Him to help us read His Bible well and interpret it well. So I want to pray with you, and then we'll begin. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, our God, God in heaven, you are truly excellent in every way, and it baffles us. Your goodness both inspires us and it confuses us at the same time. And my hope this morning is that you would help us. Help us to learn to love you with our heart and soul and our minds. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, and teach us your ways. We are listening because we love you and we trust you and we believe that you are the only source of life in this world. Amen. I'm going to start with a personal story of when I was a junior in high school in the state of Wisconsin, in the town where Tony Romo is from, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, or former quarterback. He used to go to my high school. I'm in the town in Burlington, Wisconsin, and I'm talking in my kitchen with a trusted believer, an older woman who, who had been in the faith for a very long time, and I had been wrestling with this question for a very long time, and so I finally had the courage to bring it up. And I said this. I said, we believe that there was a time where nothing at all existed except for God. And that as John 1 says, everything that exists was created by God. She says, well, yeah, that's right. I said, okay, then 
why is there so much evil in a world that God created? He must have created evil. No, 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 that's not right. She said, that's not, that's not correct. Satan created evil. I said, okay, that solves the problem a little bit, but it also raises the next question, which is who created Satan? Well, God did. All right. Well, don't you see then God is ultimately responsible for the evil in the world? Well, yeah, but no, but no, it's not that. I said, well, if he created everything that exists and Satan exists and the Holocaust exists and all of the tsunamis and earthquakes and despair and suffering and murder and rape and death all as part of his world, you can't say it doesn't trace right back to him as the ultimate cause of all things. Well, you don't have enough faith, she said to me. And I had been struggling with this problem for several years. Didn't have the courage to ask it. And when I asked it like that, that was the response. And I didn't say anything out loud, but in the moment I thought to myself, boop, I'm out. I am done with this silly game. I will not follow a God who is evil. And if that's the response, I just don't have enough faith then I'm out. And so intellectually and in my heart, I continued to play the church, what I thought was a church game, and, but I, I was totally disconnected because I thought, this doesn't make any sense to me. Well, biblical studies started to sort of help. At a certain point in my life, I became very interested in really learning the Bible and what it says about this and, and other things. And in Romans 8.28, we see this passage that says, God works all things together for good. All things, including evil things. Okay. That sort of lends to this idea that I think many of us are very familiar with, which is we only get to see this sort of narrow slice of history. We don't understand everything that came before we don't know how it's all going to work out in the end. And that's why we look at certain things and we think that they're bad, but they're really not bad because ultimately it's all going to be synthesized. All the strands that are confusing now will be synthesized in the end and we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to say, oh, now I see how that brutal rape was actually good because it brought about a greater good. You see, this was where I started to go. As I read the Scriptures, all things, including wicked, terrible, evil things, God works together for good. Whatever you're suffering, whatever you see other people suffering, it has real purpose. And that, that evil actually is not just crazy, it's, it has a deep meaning. And that brought consolation to me. God needs to allow evil, I was taught, and I started to see in the Scriptures in some sense. He needs to allow evil to be present so that we would know His goodness. Like a black and white photograph, if there's no black, all you have is just this white blur. You know, There's no photo, there's nothing to learn. 
How would we know that God is forgiving if he didn't have something to forgive? How would we know God is gracious if he doesn't have something to be gracious toward, etc.? You see? How would we know what beauty and truth and holiness are if there wasn't an opposite to compare them to? So this helped me quite a bit. It brought comfort and consolation to the way that I thought about evil. God needs to actually have evil in his world if he's going to accomplish his greater purposes. And that sounds pretty good. It sounds weird. But it sounds comforting in the sense of, okay, this isn't all just for nothing. But then you see the real horror in this world. I recently watched a Netflix documentary on what's happening in Syria. It's dramatically different than what I've seen on news reports. Heaps of children's bodies with heads and limbs blown off. Piles of guts and exploded bones on the town square. Mothers screaming in anguish and bombs just pummeling neighborhoods. Face to face with that, it just became more difficult or becomes more difficult for us to say, yeah, this is actually meaningful and good. We just don't know how yet. It'll all synthesize in the end. God needs sin and destruction and wanton chaos in order to accomplish His greater purposes? That's going to make heaven a little weird, isn't it? If we need to have sin and chaos and pain and suffering in order to know God's glory and love and goodness, what will heaven be like where it's free from sin? Will we no longer know God's grace? Will we no longer understand His love, His kindness, His forgiveness? That was one of the questions I asked this woman in that real tangible moment in my life. I said, well, doesn't that just make heaven kind of a crazy, weird place where we can't actually know the character of God? You don't have enough faith, she said. Does our explanation of the evil in this world, even though it might comfort us, come at the cost of a good God? This is the thing that we need to be very, very careful of. Men and women, young people. The most challenging question to the Christian faith without a question is the existence of evil in a world that God created. It is a real question. It is a real challenge. It is woven throughout the Bible. Through his character Ivan, Dostoevsky asked the same question years ago in his very famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov. I included a quote from that novel on your bulletin today. Ivan is the character, and Ivan has been wrestling with this problem of evil. He has witnessed horrendous atrocities against children and other people in the neighborhood and town. And he's wrestling with this idea, how is it that a good God is in charge of a world that is like this, where young girls are beaten, murdered, thrown out? How is this possible And the question causes Ivan not to deny the existence of God, but he comes to this place where he says, 
If God requires the torture of even one small girl or boy, one small human being, if God requires the torture of just one, it's not that I don't, to bring about his kingdom, it's not that I don't believe in God, it's that I don't want to be with that God. And so here's my ticket to heaven, I don't want it. And that's, that's the, a huge conclusion moment in that story. He's wrestling not with the existence of God, but he's saying, if this is God who tortures and causes wickedness and evil, I don't want to be with a God like that. But you say again, well, if God created everything and if evil exists, then how can we possibly say that he ultimately did not create evil? How do we wrestle with that? Well, this is where I, I started to really study church history. And one of the things that was extremely helpful was learning that the church has historically not believed that evil has existence. Now you say, what in the world? I don't have to look very far to see evil and corruption in this world, but bear with me. We have for many centuries understood evil as a privation. That's kind of a technical term. It's an absence. It's a corruption, a distraction, a, a perversion, okay? So if you would think about evil not having a substance, it's imagine a wall and I, and I bash a hole out of the wall. I can look at that wall and I can see a hole in it. Does the hole exist? It does. But if I were to say that hole exists and that wall exists, existence is two different things, isn't it? When I talk about it that way. Because the hole is absolutely empty. There's nothingness there. The only reason I can even see it is because of the goodness, the wall all around it. So evil exists only in that sense. Perhaps it would be wise for us then to reverse that little motto, which is we often say, well, God needs to allow evil so we can see goodness. Let's just flip that right around and say, God creates goodness, and by looking at his goodness, we can recognize what evil is. Evil comes from us, from the created beings, us and the angels. It comes from us as we step outside of God's will and we twist or distort his reality. So here's an example that will probably resonate with many of us. God builds our bodies in a way where we are able to have sex. He builds our bodies in a way where this is a possibility. And then he tells us that these bodies are built specifically for one man and one woman to join together in a relationship that's committed. They're committed to a relationship for their whole life. He says, this is how I made your bodies to work. And when we use our bodies for sex in ways outside of that, it corrupts, it tears us apart. We step out of his existence, if you will, or his goodness or his life. We step out of it and we enter back into a, a path toward non-existence, sheer nothingness, 
our minds and our souls and our bodies even begin to corrupt or break down, headed toward a total loss. It's just like going to the Willamette River and saying, you know what, I know that God didn't make my body for breathing water, but I want to. I want to see the fishies. I love the fishies. And so you swim down 10 feet and just take a couple deep breaths. And then you, can, you know what's going to happen here. A corruption starts to happen in your lungs, and you feel it, and you say, whoa, I wasn't created for that. I'm stepping out of God's life. I'm not operating the way that he said. St. Athanasius talked about sin this way. He said sin or evil or corruption is something that sends us on this spiral back down toward non-existence, ex nihilo, from nothingness is how God created us. God gives us life. And if we step away from God's life, we start to spiral back toward from whence we came, non-existent. Jesus says, I'm not going to let him spiral all the way, and he jumps in and saves us. We'll get there in a second. Evil, then, is not something that God uses or something that God desires or needs to accomplish a greater good, but evil is something that God hates. He doesn't say, I cause divorce or I use divorce to bring about greater good. He says, I hate divorce in Malachi 2. I hate it with a perfect hatred. Evil is false. It's damnable. It will be judged as a grotesque and grueling distortion, and it will be finally eradicated. In this sense, then, evil is nothing more than an absurdity, and it has no purpose. I'll say that again. Evil is meaningless, it's absurd, and it has no purpose. This is where things start to get really interesting. Because, you know, I, I, if you're like me, you're like, okay, that feels better. But now the Bible speaks to us, and it really challenges us. I want to do two texts this morning. The first one, I think, is, is easier than the second one. So we'll start easy, and then we'll get a little more difficult. The first one relates to suffering that a father brings upon his children for the purpose of discipline. The second one talks about suffering on an innocent. Suffering makes a little more sense when somebody deserves it, right? But when it's an innocent child, it's, it hits us in a different place. So we're gonna do two texts. The first one will be God disciplining. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29.11 seems to flat out disqualify everything I've said so far. <laughs> So pay attention. This is, this is interesting. Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm going to read this to you, and it really challenges everything I just said, but I'm going to keep talking about it. So here we go. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 is where we start. Now, this is a song, and it's in the context of Jeremiah um, revealing the words of God to a people who have been sent off into exile. Their homeland was crushed, they were pulled away into slavery and exile. They're not allowed to live in the promised land. So it's a bad spot that they're in. You can imagine the suffering they're feeling. 
And here's what God says. He says, For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord, and I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. When you seek me in prayer and worship, you will find me available to you. And if you seek me with all your heart and soul, I will make myself available to you, says the Lord. Then I will reverse your plight. You're getting beaten and downtrodden now. I'm going to switch that baby around and you're going to head toward hopefulness. I will reverse your plight, regather you from all the nations from that I exiled you into. I will bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. Meaning, I will bring you home to the place of shalom, to a place of rest in me. That's cool so far, right? This is good news. God is not just going to let the suffering go on. But then the next couple verses talk about this group who when God brought discipline to His people to correct them, a couple of good band of people said we can avoid God's discipline by not going into exile. We'll escape down to Egypt. And they kind of stole the prophet Jeremiah almost like a hostage and took him with. Okay, So these are the people that God speaks to next. Verse 17, the Lord who rules over all says to these rebellious people, I will bring war and starvation and disease upon them. I will treat them like figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will chase after them with war, starvation, and disease. I will make all the kingdoms of the earth horrified at what happens to them. I will make them examples of those who are cursed, objects of horror, hissing, scorn, and ridicule among the nations where I exile them. For they have not paid attention to what I said through the, to them through my servants and prophets. They have not listened to the people that I sent to them. Whoa. You look at that and you say, man, that sounds an awful lot like a God who causes raw, hardcore evil, doesn't it? God is saying, I will do these things. But wait, right on the front end, he said, I do not intend to harm you. You say, well, if you're going to bring war and starvation, and then in the next, in the sentence before that, you said, I don't want to harm you, what do we make of this? It's difficult. Here we have to pay very close attention to the difference between kindness and love. Kindness, which is often, if you are alive in modern America right now, which we all are, okay, We've sort of adopted a, a definition of love that's not love, it's, it's just kindness. Kindness is just wanting another to be happy. Regardless of whether they become good or evil, you just want to ease another person's suffering. Yes? That's basic mere kindness. But the Old Testament talks about God in His deep character as, as being a God of chesed, loving kindness, love and kindness together. C.S. Lewis has a, a great way of putting this together. He says, it is for people that we don't care anything about that we demand happiness on any terms. You see? So he's saying, 
If you just want people to be happy, period, that means you don't care about them. Because what you're saying is, hey, I just want to ease your suffering. Whether or not it makes you good or bad doesn't really matter. But Lewis continues, he says, but with our friends and with our lovers and with our children, we are exacting and we would rather see them suffer much than to be happy in contemptible or estranging ways. You know this. If you have a brother who, or a sister who thinks that I am just the most happy when I torture neighborhood cats, you don't say, you know what, that's awesome. Let me find some cats for you to torture so you can be happy. You actually say, no, that is evil. We don't torture the neighborhood cats. If you do that, it's contemptible and it will estrange you from the rest of your people. People won't like you, <laughs> okay? So if you really love somebody, you're not just trying to make them happy or free them from suffering. You're wanting them to become good rather than evil. This is our God. Oftentimes we are suffering and we get upset with God. We say, why don't you just ease my suffering right now? And we know from the scriptures that God has put forth to us as a father, not who is just kind. It's not mere kindness, it's loving kindness. So he loves us, trains us, teaches us, disciplines us. And many of those Old Testament texts that talk about this in a way where you're just like, how could God bring this harm on people, this suffering? It is a suffering, but it's not a deep corruption. It's a harm, but it's not a harm in the soul. He's training and disciplining. Rather than merely kind, God is purely love in all of its stern and splendid goodness, okay? Now, I think that helps us a little bit with, with evil, suffering. In some ways, I can make sense of God allowing suffering for me to become shaped and crafted into who he wants me to be. But then I came across the story of Joseph. Two, two and a half years ago, I preached on the story of Joseph for a long time. The story of Joseph is a much harder passage. I have said that I believe evil has no purpose. But the story of Joseph calls that to question once again. It challenges us. Some of you might know the story of Joseph. We, we understand he's uh, the younger brother in a group of many brothers, and they are very jealous of him. The dad really likes Joseph more than all of his siblings. You guys imagine if you have a certain sibling, and they are the ones who get an awesome multicolored robe, and nobody else gets the cool robe, and they're frustrated, and they're like, what in the world? Why does he get shown all this favor? It all seems unfair. So they say, we're going to get even with this guy. This is going to be fun. And they come up with this plan. They beat him up. They throw him into a hole. And while they're going to leave him in the hole to die, in traipses a, a caravan of traitors. And they say, whoa, rather than just letting him die, let's score some cash off of this brother of ours. So they sell him as a slave. And then away he goes. Joseph's story is one where he gets unjustly locked in prison. Then he gets raised out of prison. Then he gets charged falsely charged with rape so they lock him back up in prison they beat him up it's terrible it seems absurd like evil has just run amok and 
It's with an innocent 17-year-old boy. But then the most profound statement comes straight from the mouth of our wise hero, Joseph. Decades have passed since this brutal crime has happened. He has almost but forgotten his brothers. His brothers have probably carried the weight of that shame. You know what it's like. We all, there's nobody in this room who doesn't know what it's like to carry a secret sin. Deep burden, heavy. Most of us have deep secret sins we carry our entire lives. And these brothers had been carrying that sin. They knew what they had done. Joseph knew what they had done. They're terrified of Joseph when they meet with him face to face. And here we are. We thought that they were long gone. They're face to face with Joseph. And we also were expecting Joseph to bring the divine retribution, aren't we? We kind of want him to. Get even with those brothers of yours who threw you into a hole. But not Joseph. He wouldn't even consider it. Genesis 45, verses 5, 7 through 8, he says, Hey guys, don't be distressed. And don't be mad at yourselves for what you did. For selling me here. Because it was to save the lives that God sent me here ahead of you. Verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. Why was Joseph sent ahead? God knew that a famine was coming. All of the nations around would be starving to death. Joseph was very wise and he created storehouses of grain that people could survive on. Joseph looks back on the crime and he says, you guys sold me as a slave, but God sent me as a savior. This is confusing. We say, what? God did this? Was God making their fists clutch as they beat their brother in the face and kicked him down into a hole? Was that God's strength? Was it the Spirit of God who was helping them come up with their murder plot? When they had slaughtered the goat and dipped Joseph's multicolored robe in blood so that they could deceive their father and say, we don't know what happened to Joseph. He got eaten by a lion or a wild beast. Was God helping them create that deceit? You skip ahead to Jesus, and it says Jesus is fully man, fully God. In him, there was no deceit. Did God help the brothers come up with the lie? Hate, jealousy, violence, deceit. Has God used evil here to bring about the greater good of saving many through the storehouses of grain? There's an interesting cue here. Notice the verbs. The brothers, the Bible tells us, the brothers sell. God sends. The brothers commit the crime of selling another human being. That's a bad deal. God sends Joseph. But how can both of these things be happening at once? Perhaps it works like this. Perhaps in the, in the midst of the suffering and the evil that we cause, 
which utterly destroys hope and goodness, God is actually powerful enough to give us hope. And He can recreate what we destroy. Rather than God using evil to bring about goodness, perhaps God is always bringing about goodness, even in the context of our own evil. And the story of the Bible is one that says nothing can defeat our God. No matter how wicked it is, no matter if you try to sell and murder and brutalize your brother and get him out of your life, that's not God doing those sinful things, but God sees it and he makes it be a sent reality. He interweaves his goodness into our evil and ultimately eradicates evil altogether. Our bent on uncreating or on destroying goodness does not stop God from continuing to create and recreate goodness wherever he goes. Isn't that the idiom of the New Testament? Isn't this the picture that we see? A Jesus who is God, who everywhere that he goes, do you see Jesus walking around in the world saying, okay, I'm going to make these guys evil so that this greater good can happen? Or does Jesus, every time he confronts evil, shut it down? You see? When he runs into demons and Satan, he doesn't shake hands and say, we're partners. He shuts them down. He heals. He restores. He brings life. He's bringing us to a place where there will be no more tears. You get to the end of Joseph's story and, and the dad has died. And, and though the brothers were, were cool with Joseph and his kindness toward them, they were still nervous, still carrying that sort of fear. Man, we hurt Joseph so bad back then. Yeah, he's being nice to us now, but now that dad is dead, Maybe Joseph is going to step into charge and he's going to harm us again. So this is the closing scene, and they're pretty nervous about it. His brothers, when they came, they threw themselves down before Joseph, kind of begging him. They're like, please don't hurt us. We'll do anything. We're your slaves. And Joseph said to them, hey, guys, don't be afraid. Am I God? Don't bow down to me like I am. He says, you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. That's in Genesis chapter 50. We're starting in verse 18. Again, it sounds a lot like Romans 8.28, doesn't it? It says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. We have been called according to His purpose. But this passage in Romans, along with this Joseph story, is not about God using evil to make a greater good. It, like the whole story of the Bible, is about a God who cannot be stopped by evil. He's not afraid of it. In all things, whether they're good or evil, God is the one who is always working for good. Back at that kitchen in Wisconsin, where I first asked this question about the problem of evil out loud, it was because my Aunt Tina, who was 28 years old, had died. She died of Hodgkin's disease. And when she did, and at the funeral, there was this strange optimism that sort of hovered around the community. Yeah, this death is painful or whatever, but that's only because we don't have God's perspective 
sadness. You can be sad a little bit for a minute or two, but really, this is a good thing. We don't know how, but it's a good thing. God is going to bring about a greater good. We can be happy. We can be optimistic. Everything is good because God is the cause of everything. So I smiled, and I nodded, and then when I was alone, I wept. Because looking at my Aunt Tina's hollow eyes and pale skin and dead corpse in her coffin was deeply troubling to me. As I looked at her face, was I really looking at the work of God? An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God has the power to stop evil. He has the know-how. He has the desire to protect us. Yes, how could he be the mastermind behind such an atrocity? It grieved me so deeply. Why and wherefore are hardships visited upon man, asks the rabbi Joseph Solvechik. Why and wherefore do the righteous suffer and evildoers prosper? From what wondrous morning when Moses, that faithful shepherd, communed with the creator of the universe and pleaded for the comprehensive solution to the question of questions. Throughout the generations, the prophets and the sages of Israel have grappled with this conundrum. Habakkuk demanded satisfaction for this affront to justice. Jeremiah and King David in the Psalms and Solomon and Ecclesiastes, they all pondered this problem. The book of Job is dedicated to this ancient riddle that still hovers our, around our world and it demands its own resolution. Why does the Holy One, blessed be He, permit evil to have dominion over His creatures? Some of you might be saying, well, but Ben, come on, look. It's in the Word. Stop questioning God. You don't have enough faith! The Bible never says that we can't ask this question. The Bible asks this question, as I've just noted, over and over and over throughout it. It's the most formidable challenge to God's people throughout all of time. Let's ask it then. Let's have Christian communities where these questions, questions like this and others that just really gnaw at us, where we can ask them and converse about them freely instead of being afraid that we shouldn't be asking as though it's some kind of negative doubt. This is a good question to ask. Let's start thinking about how to solve it. And that's where I want to end today. I can't solve the problem of evil for you, but I think I can give you a way forward. Because we have just said, this is a confusing topic, is it not? We remember back to Joseph's days, and there was this little line throughout the whole... You guys got to go back and read the Joseph story. If you think you know the Joseph story because you learned it in Sunday school and you remember a coat of many colors, go back and read it now that you're more grown up, and it is profoundly intricate. It's really cool. But you see this line all the time, and it says... In the bad moments, it says, and the Lord was with him. And then you see it in the good moments, and it says, and the Lord was with him. 
way, way back in history, we're starting to get this picture of God being with his people, not abstractly out there sitting and just watching. He's here in every moment of suffering. He's with you in your suffering. You say, no, he must not be because God would eliminate it. But the truth is, is he does allow it. We know that's true. Everybody in this room knows that's true. Satan wants you to think God is far away, but he's not. He's with us like he was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. We see Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us here in every moment, continuing to interweave his goodness into the fabric of our existence, even though we corrupt it. So I have come to believe that our answer is wrapped up not in the thinking about the problem of evil, but in the doing. I want to propose to you that the Scriptures teach us far less about how to think correctly about the problem of evil. And they teach us a great deal about how to live in the midst of pain and suffering with one another. Another way to say it is like this. The Bible teaches me to join with God, who is present here, to join with Him in the way that He lives in this world of suffering. It does not teach me how to intellectually process evil in a way that just makes sense. Evil does not make sense. It is absurd. But Jesus does make sense. And He teaches me to have a living hope in, the, in His power. Not His power to use evil, but in His power to totally blast it out of existence. The answer to the problem of evil then will not come through thinking. But instead, and I believe this in my heart and in my soul, the answer to the problem of evil will come as you live with Jesus in your participation with God, literally living in Jesus' own life. Christians are to be fruitful, to create, to love, and to form God's good world with Him. We can look to the great narrative of the Bible and the fuller revelation of the New Testament and especially in Jesus and we can believe God and what he says about his creation way back in Genesis 1. It is very good. We can trust that James was right when he said God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone to do evil. That's James 1.13. We can believe John when he says God is light and in him there is zero darkness. That's 1 John 1, 5. And we can trust Paul when he says God is not the author of confusion or chaos. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 33. And so when I look into the faces of the torn and mangled bodies of children in Syria, when I see the heaps of corpses after the tsunami in Japan or Myanmar, when I see the crushed people in Haiti under the rubble of earthquakes, when I approach my Aunt Tina's coffin in that funeral home, I'm looking at a corruption, not some sort of estranged goodness. And so I want to close with two paragraphs from one of my favorite authors who's written a, a treatise, if you will, about this issue. His name is David Bentley Hart. And he puts it this way. This is how we'll close this morning. Listen to how he processes this. It's very beautiful. 
He says, For while Christ takes the suffering of his creatures into himself, that's that passage where it says, He became sin, he who knew no sin. The idea is that Christ enters into this suffering world with us. While he does that, it is not because he had need of suffering or because his creatures had need of suffering, but instead he would not abandon his creatures to the grave. And while we know that the victory over evil and sin and death has been won, we also know that it's a victory that's yet to come. This is the tension we live in. And that creation, therefore, as Paul says, is groaning in expectation of the glory that is not yet revealed. It will one day be revealed. And until then, the world remains a place of struggle between light and darkness, truth and falsehood, life and death. And in such a world, our portion, what we do, is love, real love. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine no comfort greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but I see the face of his enemy. It is not a face that would necessarily satisfy Ivan Karmarotsov, but neither is it one of neither is it one that his arguments can defeat. For it has set us free from optimism and taught us instead to hope. We can rejoice that we are saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace. That God will not unite all of history's many confusing strands into one great synthesis at the end, but He will judge much of history false and damnable that He will not simply reveal the sublime logic of our fallen nature, but He will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. And that, rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for building up the kingdom, He will instead raise her up and wipe away all of her tears from her eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away, and he that sits upon the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Pray with me. Father, we love you, and we trust you, and it's easy to say both of those statements, and then we have real suffering in our lives, and it becomes difficult to trust you. We want it to make sense in our minds, God, and it, and it doesn't. We don't know what to say when our loved one passes away because it's like our brains were not built to process this kind of corruption. God, I ask that through your Spirit you would comfort the men and the women and the young people in this room when they experience great suffering. Teach us as a Christian community here in Portland not to revel in a triumphal optimism that negates who you are. Help us instead to always remember that you are purely good, truly loving in the deepest place of your core, that your chesed, your loving kindness is pervasive through you and that you're present with us. Build us up and strengthen us so that we can participate with you 
and be creators of life with you in this world that is dying from corruption. You alone give life. You don't corrupt us. Thank you for loving us the way you do, Jesus, our great God, our creator, and our savior. Amen.